John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31, page 1077. Now, while you find that, let me just kind of set up our theme for today. Uh, we're going to read about the first appearance to the apostles of Jesus and, and that rather well-known story among Christians about Thomas. And we, we love calling him Doubting Thomas. Uh, I'm in the crowd that agrees that maybe he gets a bad rap. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. But before we do, I just want to reflect on something that's been on my mind a lot over the last couple of years. I can't help but notice that, that uh, with every year of my adult life, I see more and more interest in paranormal activity, you know, more and more interest in, in things like UFOs and Sasquatch and, and ghosts and, and, uh, and even a sort of passive interest in the occult, uh, not, not an active interest, but just curiosity about what other people believe and how they come to have certain superstitions and things. And, and you know, parents and, and uh, young families a lot of times will talk with me about, you know, like, I try to keep my kids away from these dark things and, and you know, knowing what the limits are and everything. And, and so my whole premise is basically to say that, that, you know, people in this world that we live in are, are pretty open to trying to figure out a lot of things that science doesn't adequately explain and religion doesn't really adequately explain. And so they find themselves looking to podcast experts. You know, they find themselves looking to uh, uh, TV shows where they interview somebody who wrote a book and then put a title under their name, you know, under their picture on the screen. And, and so we're, we're looking constantly for authority on matters that we can't make sense of. And over the last couple of years, we've even realized that we don't really trust the people who are supposed to be experts on a lot of things. And so to sum up my, my premise and my introduction here, I want to say that if people are that interested and open to uh, paranormal activity and a lot of other interesting and curious things that science and religion don't deal with very well, why not tell them about the resurrection of Jesus? You know, why not? What is it about us Christians that makes it so difficult for us to talk about the fact that a man who was brutally murdered in front of all of his friends died and rose again three days later? Why can't we talk about that? And why can't we flesh that out with the people who are curious? You know, we live in an interesting time as Christians, and, and I'm going to be really blunt with you right now. I look out and I see a wonderful group of people that I'm crazy about, and I also see an absence of people that need to be here if the church is going to continue to serve God in this community in the future. In, uh, in other words, I look forward to a day when we don't have enough room for all the children in the children's choir because they're the future. And we have generation now of people who have matured without any particular faith system. And they're the ones that are consuming all of this interesting information that's out there about things that don't really fit into anybody's religion or science. They're interested, they're curious. They're looking for meaning in their lives. They're looking for explanations for things that don't seem entirely logical. And we have actually a lot more ammunition than we realize, except that Christians have fallen short a lot over the last few generations because we're dogmatic. 
So here's a church word that I want to teach you, dogma. It's a word that doesn't exclusively apply to church, but it is most often heard with regard to church. Dogma is the stuff we believe that isn't necessarily uh, an accurate representation of our doctrine. Now, doctrine is another church word that describes our, what we do officially believe, <laughs> what our official stated set of beliefs are, what you would say, you know, maybe parameters or boundaries around our system of belief. And doctrine has a lot to do with what we're talking about in our denomination right now uh, regarding how we want to be related to each other as far as the future goes, because there's disagreement about doctrine. So the first thing you have to do is draw clear differentiation between doctrine and dogma. Because dogma is very subjective. Dogma is based on your traditions and what makes you feel comfortable. Now, I'm getting to the point pretty quickly, believe it or not, but you will find, if you're honest, that if you've gone to church all your life, you have a certain dogma that is an essential part of your religious activity. In other words, you believe certain things should be the way that you perceive them to be or don't perceive them to be based on more of your, your tradition than on the actual doctrinal standards that you tacitly uphold. In other words, you have been attending church here at Shiloh, let's say, for the last 30 years, and whether you know it or not, you have been, by your attendance, supporting the doctrines of the United Methodist Church. And so when someone tries to figure out who you are and what you represent because you go to church here, they'll start with those doctrinal standards, but then you'll say, well, wait, 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 we don't necessarily believe that, and that's your dogma. Do you get my point? Now, let's get back to this discussion of, of the risen Lord. A doctrinal thing that pretty much all Christians in every denominational setting agree on is that Christ died and rose again. We all agree about that. And yet, I'm gonna really discourage you for a moment and tell you from personal experience and a lot of documented knowledge that there are many, many professors and elders among the clergy and seminary uh, teaching and, and, and doc, uh, I would say dogma in this case, but in seminaries all across the land, there are people that don't believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They, they don't believe a lot of things that are doctrinally part of the system they represent. That's a fact. There are people that don't believe and they teach the clergy who end up being in the pulpit in front of you, like me, things that don't, that aren't consistent with the doctrinal standards that are supposedly absolutes in our, in our system. And the actual literal resurrection of Jesus from death is one of those things. So when we read this account, I want you to think seriously for a moment about poor old Tom, because we're like him if we're honest. This is why it gets such a bad rap, because we're all like, oh, I would have believed it. No, you wouldn't. Come on. Think about it for a minute. Would you really? Let's see. We'll read the story in that light and see if it changes anything in our thinking. Because what we're really striving for is, 
is a sort of holiness of heart and mind. I want us to think not only with our faith, but also with the intellect that God gave us, a mind like God's own. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19 says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Come on, let's be honest about this. I don't want to bring you down on a beautiful Sunday morning, but if you haven't ever really looked at death up close and personally, thank God for that. But if you have, then you know as well as I do how permanent it is how really absolute death is. Now, if you were like them, and many combat veterans could relate to this, you've seen how a person can be very, the flesh can be far less durable than we think. And so if you were like them, witnesses to Christ being taken down from the cross and laid in the tomb, and you saw that all of his life's blood had been drained out, that his body had been mortally wounded in a few ways, if you knew as certainly as they did that Jesus was dead, then you, like the women who came to finish the process of dressing his body for what we'll call decay, would have expected even to encounter a certain amount of putrefaction even on that third day. My point is, is don't think for a minute 
that Thomas was wrong to have said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to see this with my own eyes. Not only see it, but touch it. I, I have to feel his warm flesh because the last time I touched it, it was ice cold. I have to put my hands in those wounds because, because those wounds killed him. And if you're saying he's alive, then those wounds bear witness to that just as much as his living flesh. So you might have wondered when I was going about all that stuff before we read the passage, what's the point? Well, the point is, is that we who are often willing to consider the plausibility of ghosts, we who are often willing to consider the plausibility of a lot of other strange and supernatural things, ought to be willing to consider the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus from death. Personally, I've laid hands on the dead, seen the dead up close and personal, but one thing I have never done is touched the person who was once dead and now is alive. And so my faith is the only thing that I can rely on in this belief that I have about Jesus' resurrection. And the remarkable thing is that we tend to overlook the power of the Holy Spirit because the very willingness that we have to take certain things for granted is a gift of the Spirit. Which is ironic because in that regard, we are taking the Spirit of God for granted. As Christian believers, we are informed in a way that has increased our faith and our faith has increased our ability to be receptive to the information the Holy Spirit gives. And, and so we're in this wonderful cycle that John Wesley would describe as, as holiness of heart and mind. That somehow our faith increases our intellectual capacity and our intellectual capacity increases our faith and they just sort of feed on each other as the Holy Spirit enables it all. And so we willingly take for granted that Jesus was dead and that he rose from the grave, walked among his disciples for perhaps as long as two years. There's some confusion about that. And... It's not a relevant thing. It doesn't change the, the, the importance of, of what happened during his resurrected period, but simply gives us a sense that, that they became quite comfortable with the fact that he was alive again. They became at ease with it. And Thomas's response is, well, it's two things really. It's twofold. And the thing we tend to concentrate most on is his doubt, but really his doubt is much easier to accept because we would be very similar. What's amazing is his instantaneous statement of faith. He just took one look, you know, there's no indication in scripture that he had to touch anything. And, and I'm sure Jesus was probably insistent that he do so for your sake. Do you hear that? Jesus was thinking about you the day he said to Thomas, no, seriously, give me your hand, <laughs> you know? Thomas had already fallen at his feet and said, my Lord and my God, when's the last time you fell at anyone's feet and worshiped them, let alone calling them Lord and God, my, my boss and my divine superior? You know, um, we're Americans. We're, we're radically and, 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 and sincerely devoted to our independence and 
it's hard enough just to stand in front of an authority figure and try not to, you know, shoot your mouth off, you know. <laughs> Imagine actually worshiping someone who is clearly superior in every human and divine way. Tom did it instantaneously. And then Jesus says, in effect, and you can read this in other places in the account, that he says, look, for the sake of the ones who follow, that's you and me, go ahead, touch everything. I need you to do that. They need you to do that. You're the one who will testify throughout the ages that when you doubted, your doubts were set aside because you touched these wounds and you saw and felt my living flesh. You see? That's why it's so important to talk about Thomas. And it brings me back to the original premise. We as Christians take for granted a lot of things that people around us no longer believe or don't even know to believe. And so what did they have to go by except for us? So maybe you go out into the marketplace and you're wearing some Shiloh gear. You got a new Shiloh t-shirt on or you you're carrying one of those Shiloh shopping bags and somebody says oh you worship there you go to church there huh what do people do in church anyway and and I mean you might think this is absurd but we are living in a time when that is a very likely question and I know that us older folks we're not as comfortable with evangelism because we've seen it done so poorly in the past and we have this vision of it being a professional job done by people like Billy Graham but you know what evangelism is just sharing good news with people and and boy do people need good news right now they need good news and and they need good news that's reliable and trustworthy and true and that's a hard thing to come by isn't it I mean, seriously, when's the last time you listened to a politician giving you good news and you believed that it was true? You know, when's the last time that, well, quite honestly, when's the last time most of the preachers that are doing the preaching on TV and stuff like that said things that you thought were down to earth and coming from a point of view that you could relate to? I'm not trying to pick on other clergy. It's not an appropriate thing to do from the pulpit. What I'm saying is, is that my profession has taken a real credibility hit over the years. And your profession of Christ has taken a real credibility hit over the years. And it has a lot to do with our behavior and our words, our apathy. It has to do with the way our lips are moving and our mouths are saying things, but our bodies seem to testify to something entirely different. Do you believe that Jesus was brutally murdered and then by his own authority? Now, I don't know why this doesn't get emphasized more in church, because if it was up to me, it would always be this way in the creeds even. But he didn't just, you know... I, like when he gave life back to, to uh, Jairus's daughter, when he gave life back to Lazarus, you know, they, they were basically dead or their life functions had ceased and then he started them up again. And that's pretty powerful, trust me, you know, but, but modern medicine can do that too sometimes. Sometimes they get lucky and all the right things come together and they restart a dead person's life. Now, 
What Jesus did is entirely different. He was absolutely dead. And then there in the tomb, his body lay and he, the spirit of God, the father God, they together fill that tomb with glory, fill that body with glory. And then as a decision of his own will, he is resurrected. It's just inconceivable, which is all the more proof to me of the efficacy of this doctrinal belief we have that Christ is alive today. That a human being in flesh like our own, but resurrected flesh, and we'll not get into that today, but just notice that there are certain indications in the stories in Scripture that being resurrected comes with certain benefits that we don't currently possess. Apparently, locked doors and great distances aren't of much consequence when you're resurrected. Now, I won't leave you hanging. I have a theory about that that I think is plausible even trustworthy and true, and that is it has everything to do with his now completed connection with time and space where we live and operate and the eternal realm of heaven. And therefore, time can, upset, can offset all kinds of physical limitations. And so you, can, you could imagine him not so much passing through walls as stepping out of time for a second and then coming back in on the other side of a wall. Just a little Doctor Who sci-fi stuff for you. We'll talk more about it on another occasion. Just know this, he was alive. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't, he wasn't a figment of people's imaginations. There were hundreds of people that testified to seeing him and encountering him, eating with him. This was Jesus alive. And that day, which we will celebrate in a few weeks, when he ascended to heaven, he ascended bodily into the realm of heaven outside of time and space. And today, at this very moment, in this realm of heaven, in God's throne room, Christ Jesus is there in the flesh. And it will be him in the flesh that returns to gather us together and we too in the resurrected form that he now possesses in a unique way as what Paul calls the firstborn of the living resurrected. And so the point that I wish you to take away today is simply that there are people out there all around you who do not know or understand what Christians are and if all they have to go by is how you live your life the things that come out of your mouth, they may have come to certain conclusions about Christians that aren't necessarily accurate. You know, if you talk to people, and many polls have been done, if you talk to the current generations of young adult people who do not have any connection with church or Christianity, you will find that they're actually very open to hear what we believe and understand what Christians do in their churches. But you must approach them without this presumptuous sort of idea that you're already right and they're already wrong, you know? You have to be open. You have to be willing to just say, so before I tell you what we are and what we do, I'd be curious to know what you think 
we do. What you think about us and what you find is, is that for a long time, people who are, we called them unchurched a few years ago, will say, well, I think Christians are judgmental and kind of mean-spirited and they don't like gay people. <laughs> That's what they'll say. And, you know, if they heard the discussions that are going on around our building right now about denominational standards and whether we want to stay in the denomination or out, we might, if we're not careful, reinforce some of their ideas about us. And so, for the record, let's not make the discussion about that. Let's talk about more things, bigger things, that are illustrated in symptoms like the ones that we are most prone to talk about. The things that cause us to be accused of being haters, okay? We need to figure out why they think we're haters because that's a bigger problem. And this is what I'm getting at. What we can say is, is that Jesus was brutally murdered for no particular crime that could be established by the legal system of the day and the legal system had to be corrupted in order to pull off this, this brutal injustice. And when he was dead, everybody knew it. There was no question that he was dead. And yet somehow by his own authority, he came back to life and he was present to everyone that he meant to see. And oh, by the way, why didn't he appear to the civil authorities and people like that? Well, you know how civil authorities can be and even religious authorities sometimes. They don't like to have their comfortable status quo upset. They don't like to have it undone. And so even if the facts are staring them right in the eye, they're gonna deny it. Think about Pharaoh, for instance, when Moses was before him and Aaron's Words on behalf of God turned a, a staff into a serpent. Um, when nine plagues that were devastating to the people of Egypt were absolute demonstrations of the God of Moses and his authority over all of creation, what did the civil authorities do? Hard-heartedly, they ignored and neglected it. Jesus appears to people who are open to see him and hear him, who instead of running because they're terrified of something they can't make sense out of, you know, when you listen, and I, I want to wrap this up here, but just keep in mind that, that some of this paranormal stuff I was alluding to earlier, what you hear when people talk about this stuff is, is well, I, I tried every way I could think of to make sense of it. So I said to myself, well, it must be this, it must be that, it has to be this, it has to be that, because there was no room in their mind for something they could not have conceived of until that moment. Now consider people like Thomas and the apostles and all the men and women who met him after the resurrection. They could conceive of it and they readily worshiped him. But there would have been those who were not able to imagine a way that this could fit what they know. It couldn't fit their science. It couldn't fit their doctrine and dogma. It didn't make sense. So it had to be some sort of hysteria. It had to be a ghost. It had to be some sort of thing that they could imagine 
because there was no room in their heart and mind for the idea that a man who was brutally killed, absolutely dead by his own authority, rose from the grave. But those who accepted it immediately worshipped him, and those who could not fell away, fainted dead as though they were dead, right? That's what scripture tells us. Where are you in that spectrum? And if so, if you find yourself in that spectrum, how would you share this with people you love and care about? Let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you burn it into our hearts. And of course, anything that isn't directly from you, Lord, we ask that you cast it off so that for your sake, there is truth in love in all matters. Amen.